Let's pray, and then we're going to jump into the book of Micah, chapter 5. Lord, we thank you for all these events that you have put together, and we thank you for the work that you're doing in each and every one of us. We pray specifically for those kids and for this time, this afternoon, as a church out on the beach just in front of the world proclaiming your name. And we pray we'd have a blessed time, and for those that are dedicating themselves to you publicly, that you would prosper them and bless them, Lord. We pray for this morning's study that you would be teaching us from the Word, that you would be confronting us from your Word, and that you would be guiding us as we grow closer and closer to you. We thank you that you came and revealed yourself to us so that we could know you intimately. And so we lift this morning up to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Micah chapter 5 is strange in the way that it starts because verse 1 technically begins, or it is connected to the previous chapter. And then you have verse 2, which is one of the most famous verses in all of Scripture, especially around Christmas time. And it's interesting to me, like, well, why did they do this? Well, first of all, the chapters and verses, they're not put there by God. They're put there by man. They're there so that we would know how to reference things, and I would be able to tell you, oh, yeah, John 3.16, so we can get to Scripture quickly. But I also think that there's a reason, and we're going to apply it, and we're going to look at them and how they contrast, and you might find it fascinating, and you might think, man, Mike, you're really stretching things now. Either way, there is a saying that says, if God is with me, if God is for me, who can be against me? But we see from Micah chapter 5, if God is against me, who can be for me? Is just as true. Now remember, in its context, when we read verse 1, we are connecting to what Micah has already been prophesying. The rulers, the high priests, the false prophets, those that are in authority, they are ripping off the people. They are not serving God. They're worshiping false idols behind closed doors. It's a a time of just debauchery. But in the world's eyes, they're richer and powerful. And they have everything going for them in in man's eyes. And yet we're going to see it accounts for nothing. So let's read verses 1 and 2 together. It says, Now gather yourself in troops, O daughter of troops. He has laid siege against us. They will strike the judge of Israel with a rod on the cheek. Now in verse 2, we have a subject change. But you, Bethlehem Ephratah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. Now, verse 2 is one of the most famous verses of all time, and we're going to talk about it a little bit, but let's go back to verse 1, which connects to the previous chapter. Gather yourselves into armies. They're laying siege against us. Remember, they're talking about the Assyrian invasion of Israel to the north and eventually the Babylonian invasion to the south. Micah is telling them we are going to lose. God is raising up armies against us. God is going to destroy us. And yet, think about it, they're in their richest, most powerful, charismatic time. I mean, they think they're winning. In the eyes of the world, everything's going great to those rulers, except that God is not with them. God is not for them, and He's raising up true prophets to tell them that, giving them an opportunity to repent, but they won't. But you have one of the most important words in all of Scripture here, beginning in verse 2, but, but, but God... But God, you maybe you've came here this morning and you're healthy and you're strong and things are going well and 
you got some money in the bank and you're feeling good. But apart from God, if you're not walking with God, if you're not in a relationship with Him, it's all going to account for nothing sooner or later. And we're going to talk about that. And I'm going to ask you to take that thought and put a bookmark there, and we're going to come back to it in a little bit. Because now we're going to dissect verse 2 and how important it is. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrata, it's not just the city of Bethlehem, it is the exact region and place. Remember, this is 700 B.C., and God is saying 700 years, seven centuries before it happens, exactly where the Messiah is going to be born, Jesus, who would be raised in Nazareth. How important is this town? Well, we see that this is from everlasting this ruler comes up. You see, there's something fascinating here, because if you've been with us on Wednesday nights, we've been going through the Old Testament, and we're in Judges right now, and you'll remember in Genesis 16, Genesis 18, Genesis 32, Joshua 5, give me a little bit, the list is a little long, Joshua 5, Judges 6, Judges 13, and Daniel chapter 3, we have these things called Christophanies or Theophanies. It's a fancy word to say that Jesus shows up out of nowhere in the Old Testament. And you're like, well, wait a minute, wait, he's born in the first century in Bethlehem, but now you prophesied he's coming in 700 B.C., but you're telling me in 1200 and 1500 B.C. he already showed up. How how is that possible? That's because he's always existed. We'll talk about that, and we're going to unpack it a little bit here. But the Lord has been revealing to us from everlasting to everlasting that this has always been the plan. Some of you here, you need to hear today that Jesus is not the backup plan. You see, some people may feel as though God had a plan. He made Adam and Eve. They messed up. And so then he decided to have Jesus as the backup plan. How could Adam be made in the form of the invisible God? But it says there in the scripture that the Lord breathed into the earth and that man was made in God's image. It's because Adam was made in the image of Jesus. See, we look like him. He doesn't look like us when he created us. He has never been the backup plan. And this has always been the case. And throughout all of scripture from Genesis to Revelation, God has been revealing to us that he always intended to come to us. I mean, all the way back in 1 Samuel chapter 17, Samuel the prophet's going to go find the new king of Israel. Where does he go? You guys don't remember? Good, it means you're human, you're regular people. I like that. First seven, it's 1 Samuel 17. Now, David was the son of that Ephratite of Bethlehem. Does that sound, sound familiar? Judah, whose name was Jesse, who had eight sons, and the man was old, advanced in years, in the day of Saul. Millennia before Jesus comes to this earth, a prophet is raised, in the, and he goes to the exact same ho-dunk rural portion of Bethlehem, specifically named, and he's looking for a man named Jesse who has eight sons from the small tribe. And he goes there, and he's looking at these sons. They're being taught to him, nope, 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 none of those. Don't you have any other sons? Yeah, I got one. He's the ruddy, red-headed little guy out there. You don't want him, but I'll bring him out. And then the Lord says, this is the king of Israel. And it has always been the case that a descendant of David was going to be the Messiah of the world, not just the nation of Israel. And so here we are 
talking about the exact same little town because the Messiah was going to be from David's line. And then in Matthew chapter 2, verse 1, we see that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, this exact town that is mentioned. In the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. What does it say back in Micah chapter 5, verse 2? The one to be ruler in Israel. Has Jesus ever been the ruler of Israel? No. Yes, he's the king of kings. We're going to talk about that. But he has never ruled over Israel, ever. So when is this going to happen? I want to take a moment here. We're going to have a little post-it note on the side of the sermon because there are brothers and sisters in Christ who believe in something called amillennialism, that the millennium is never going to happen, that all the things that happened here in Micah, they've already happened, they've taken place, they're historical, or they're just artsy, artsy talk. Incorrect. Incorrect. We're going to talk about that in a little bit. He will be the ruler of the millennial kingdom. He will rule and reign in Jerusalem. He will physically be there, and you and I will go there just as it has said here in Micah up to this point and will continue to the end of this book. Same with the other prophets. And so when you read the scriptures plainly, verse by verse like we're doing, you, just, you look at those doctrines and you're like, how can that fit? That, you're just telling me to get the eraser out and pretend it doesn't say this. Because it will be a literal thousand-year reign of Christ. We've talked about that previously. If you're interested, you can go online. We have them all posted, and you can see it in detail. But then what else do we see from the Scripture here? Whose going forth are from of old, from everlasting. How can Jesus have these theophanies, these appearances in the Old Testament, how can He be from everlasting if He's born in the first century as a baby? Scripture tells us in John 1 that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. The Logos. He, he is thought itself. Everything is made through Him and by Him. And Jesus came down from the throne room of God and was born as a child, a baby. And look at what we're talking about here. In Revelation 22, verse 13, it says, Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. That's who we're talking about. But then He through the tapestry of Scripture, reveals that he's going to be born a child. And now I want us to get that bookmark back about that first verse and the second verse. Now I want to come back. And I, again, I may be stretching this a little bit, but it spoke to me and I pray it speaks to you. In the first verse, it says, gather together your armies. There's going to be a siege. I am about as toxic a male as you can get. I mean, give me the guns, the hammers, the tools, and the stuff. I will work harder, sleep less. I will make it happen. I will push, and we'll fix it. There's a dragon. We will slay it. Let's make this thing happen. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. <laughs> and in the first verse, God is telling Israel, hey, go and get your armies together. But then he tells them, you're going to get thrashed, and you're going to lose and it's all going to fall apart. And then in the second verse, he says, but there's going to be a little tiny baby born in Bethlehem. 
I remember when I had my little babies. And I remember Megan constantly yelling at me, don't hold them like that. Don't wrap, you got to keep her up. Watch her head. And every single time lecturing how fragile that baby was. Is she hot? Is he cold? Are they eaten yet? And Jesus, the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end, from everlasting to everlasting, becomes a weak, tiny infant in a farm animal's trough in a tiny rural town on the far-flung edges of the empire, and he is still far more powerful than any of us can possibly imagine, than all of our armies. I feel like, hey, if I got my boys together and I, I got us a tough team of the smartest people, we can make things happen. And sure, you can get a lot of stuff done. And then what? You see, here's the contrast. Jesus shows us that he is stronger than our strongest soldiers. He is better than our best politicians. I know, I know. There's a, there are some good ones out there. Look in history. He's wiser than our wisest philosophers. He's a better manager and richer than our richest business people. He, he is far better than any of those. What are we compared to him? Because our strength will fail. Our nation will collapse sooner or later. Listen, I'm a red-blooded American like you are. Yes, we are in the greatest planet in the history of greatest planet, greatest nation in the history of mankind. No one in humanity has ever had it as easy as we have it here in the United States of America in the 21st century. We have more knowledge at our fingertips than any time in humankind. And if you look at human civilization, in all of human civilization, we've been trying to figure out how to feed ourselves, and we're the most obese country on the planet. We win, okay? But sooner or later, sooner or later, it's going to be over. And the same thing is true of you. No matter how smart you are, how strong you are, how charismatic you are, how intelligent you are, you will come to the end of yourself. And as he told Paul the Apostle, in our weakness, he is made strong. He is there. And it just it disappoints me when I see Christians, even in my own house, you know, somebody pulls up a Fox News article or something on TV, and it's just clickbait. This, this, and this is happening. Oh, my gosh, what's happening to this country? Oh, I can't believe what they're doing to Christians. Oh, the church, look at it now. And you act like we're losing. You act like we can be defeated. Our king is the king of kings. He's the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end. He's outside of time. And through him, all things exist. Nothing exists without his permission. He is in control of all things. What are any of our armies and our plans and our nations and our strength and our wisdom and our philosophy compared to him? I think of Psalm 2. In Psalm 2, it says, The nations of the earth, they gather together, but he sits in the heavens and he laughs at the plans of man. We need to realize who this king is that Micah is prophesying. He is telling his country and his people and his town, listen, God is not for us. He is raising up the Assyrians to destroy us because we were called by his name and we walked away from him. And it's going to happen. But after it happens, this is what he's going to do. And he's not done. Let's read verses 3 
through 5, but we're only going to read the first line of verse 5 together. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time that she who is in labor has given birth. Then the remnant of his brethren shall return to the children of Israel, and he shall stand and feed his flock. And the strength of the Lord and the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall abide. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and this one shall be peace. Now, verse 3 is terrifying. Therefore he shall give them up. Through him is life. He is life. He is the word of God, the Logos. Everything exists because of him. And yet he says, oh, you want to go your own way? Okay, go ahead, but I'm not going with you. God himself, he says to you, you, you want to go your own way? Okay, but I'm not going there. I'm not going with you. He gives them over. And to the non-believer today, the Lord says the exact same thing. In Romans chapter 1, verse 28, it says, And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. You want to go your own way? Go ahead. Israel, at this time, they believed in their strength, at least the leaders, that they were smarter, more intelligent, richer than ever before, and they thought they were doing great. And remember what the false prophets were telling them. God will never leave us. He's never going to give us up. He's always going to love us forever. We're going to be successful because he's, we are his children. Yes, but but he's not going to allow you to continue in the way that you're going. He's not going to allow his name to be blasphemed among the world for that long. And though he raised up the Assyrians, and he's going to talk about that. We have to be careful when we say, oh, well, God's on our side. No, he is not. No. We are either on his side or we are not. Because he is the king of kings, not us. You realize that no matter what we do, we don't make God any weaker. You know, some people, when they talk about our country, they act about like if somehow the Christians aren't Christian enough that the Lord loses his power. Like Santa Claus at Christmas time. We just have to have enough faith or the sleigh won't fly. Tell that to Noah and his family, the one family in all the world that believed in the Lord. And the Lord said, I've had enough of this. And he wiped it all clean. And then people want to use the rainbow to blaspheme God. And I say, well, that's between you and the Lord. That's none of my business. The Lord doesn't need me to defend him. The Lord doesn't need me to be his judgment on the planet. The word of God stands alone. I'm a representative of his law and his word and his grace and his love. But time is the ultimate test of all things. You got to write that one down. Time is the ultimate test of of all things, if they will last or not. See, we try to live in our own strength, and maybe I'm just preaching to myself today. Like, I'm going to fix it. I'll be smarter. I'll work harder. The issue is that sooner or later, you will crash. You will collapse. And that's what's happening here when the Lord says through Micah, He's going to give them up, and it's going to come to fruition. But then it says, they will return. And then in verse 4, it says, And he shall stand and feed his flock. 
in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall abide, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and this one shall be peace. He shall feed his flock in the strength of the Lord. Now, this has not yet happened, but it will happen in the future. You see, what Micah does is he intertwines future and local prophecies together, and we are going to see that as we continue. And that makes it difficult for some people. And so the temptation for some is to say, well, it all, was, it all happened already. But no, the Lord Jesus himself has never fed his flock. They haven't been coming to him. The nation of Israel, by and large, has rejected the Lord. Now, they won't continually. The Lord's going to supernaturally preserve 144,000 of them. They will make it through the tribulation because of his grace and his sealing alone. And then the Lord's going to rule Israel for a thousand years, and we will rule and reign with him. But what about us? You see, we can go astray, and we can go our own way, and, and he'll let us go, but he will never leave us nor forsake us. The question is, am I living in my own strength or am I living in verse 4 in the strength of the Lord? Am I feeding myself and my own egos and my own beliefs or am I being fed by Him? Do you have a personal relationship with the King of Kings? Jesus came to this world and He was born a babe in Bethlehem and He was raised before us not just to die for the sins of the world although that was his primary mission, but to reconcile his children to himself. Jesus said, I and the Father are one. If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. And so if we want an intimate, personal relationship with the Creator God, we need to go to him. Boldly to the throne of grace, as it says in the book of Hebrews, and we need to abide in Him, as it says in verse 4. Doesn't that sound familiar to what Jesus said? I am the vine and the branches. That we are to abide in Him. Are you abiding in Him? Are you getting your strength from Him? Or are you doing what I occasionally do? Lord, look how strong I'm working. Lord, look how good I am. Lord, you really made me special. Look what I'm doing for you. And then I think it's something amazing, and the Lord's like, oh, that's a cute finger painting you got there. I'm going to put it on my fridge for a little bit. That was cute. Like, thank you. You ready? You ready, for some, you ready for me to do it now? You guys related to that a little too much, I think. Well, let's continue now because now we've got some deeper, harder things to look at, at least in Israel's side. So we're going to pick up in verse 5. When the Assyrian comes into our land... And when he treads in our palaces, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princely men. They shall waste with the sword the land of Assyria and the land of Nimrod at its entrances. Thus he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and when he treads within our border. So a couple of things we want to look at here. Remember, Micah is speaking to his people about a literal judgment that is coming that time. The Assyrians are across the border. Now, the Assyrians make the Nazis look like Boy Scouts. Now, the things that they do, I can't even share with you. They are beyond rated R. I mean, they are a torturous, brutal uh, culture, 
And you can go up on the Google and you can start reading about the things that they did. It's archaeologically, historically, and outside biblical sources uh, fact, historical fact. And it is crazy. That's what's coming for them. But Micah is telling them here that even though the Assyrians have been raised up and they will be in our palaces, what does that mean to you? Imagine like it was in the War of 1812 when the British burned Washington, D.C. to the ground. Well, that's what's going to happen there in Israel. Micah is telling them this before it happens. I want you to think about this, one little bonus thought. Micah's a traitor. No, he's not really a traitor. He's speaking for the Lord. This is truth. But if you had an American say to us, yeah, the Chinese are going to invade us and they're going to destroy the White House and they're going to take over everything. It's just the way it's going to be. I'm going to have words with this person because they're a traitor. This is the greatest nation in the history of mankind. We're not going to let that happen. Except he's speaking for God and it's going to happen. Because I want to take a second and I want to say that, you know, when I say these things, God doesn't look at Americans. He doesn't look at Chinese people or white people or black people or old people or young people. He sees souls, eternal souls that will live forever in one of two locations. That's what he sees. And that's what he's after. We do not want to be like the rulers of Israel, trying to just get ahead and make more money, be more charismatic, and in our eyes be successful, but then ultimately be not on the Lord's side. Now, I believe, at least this is how I, that I apply it, when we look at verse 6, he brings up this land of Nimrod. Who is Nimrod? Well, Nimrod is in Genesis chapter 10. I'll share it with you in verses 8 through 12. Cush begat Nimrod. There's our boy. He began to be a mighty one on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore it is said, like Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kelna in the land of Shinar. From the land he went to Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehobothur, and Kala and resin between Nineveh and Kala, that is the principal city. He's pretty much the founder of the Assyrians. If you know the Bible, you know the city of Nineveh, famous, one of the oldest continually inhabited cities uh, of that time. And Nimrod is known as being the strongest of the strong, the hunter, the intelligent one. If if I were back in that day, is Nimrod's poster that would be above my bed. Like, I want to be like that guy. He's smart. He's cunning. He's a hunter. Everybody wants to be like him. Now, in Scripture, he represents the Antichrist in a way. But he also represents the strength and the intelligence of man. He's the total package. He's everything that we want to be. But he's not on the Lord's side. All of our power, everything that we have, the Lord's going to use him in his plan. But ultimately here, the prophecy is that even though the Assyrians are going to come down, this ancient race of people that will destroy us, God's going to destroy them back. How many of you have met an Assyrian? Anyone? A Philistine? Now put your hand down. You, don't, you never met a single. <laughs> How about a Babylonian? Ever met a Babylonian? It's almost as if if God says he's going to wipe a people out, he wipes them out. Almost like he keeps every single one of his promises. I said earlier that I'm that guy, you know, the tough guy. But I've crashed. I've hit rock bottom. I've come to the end of myself. 
I've come to the end where there's nothing left to give. And then he's still there. The Lord is still there. He, he doesn't even start. And he carries us through. You see, sooner or later, my strength is going to fail. I might get some debilitating disease. My mental faculties will be gone. Whatever the Lord's plan is, 10 out of 10 people die unless you're Enoch or Elijah. But that's a study for another day. The rest of us, though, will come to the end of ourselves. And we may think we're like Nimrod, but the the comparison here is it doesn't matter how strong your armies, remember verse 1, it doesn't matter how strong, how smart, how good your plans are, time is the ultimate test of all things, and we will not outlast time unless we are with the Lord. You see, man, we are created in the image of God, and we have a tremendous amount of power. How can you say that? Well, in Psalm 8, verse 4 and 5, it says, What is man that you are mindful of him, speaking to God, and the son of man that you visit him? For you have made him a little lower than the angels, and you have crowned him with glory and honor. Not only has he clothed us and crowned us with glory and honor, making us a little lower than the angels, in the rest of Psalm 8, he speaks about how God has given man dominion over the world. We're building rocket ships that go to Mars. We have the internet. We are older than we've been in centuries. We are smarter. I I said earlier, you can pull out your phone. You have all the knowledge of man right at your fingertips. We are doing incredible things because God made us with that ability. But that being said, we must remember what James tells us in chapter 4, verse 14. Whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow, for what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. And so we have this great contrast. The nation of Israel chosen by God, and yet they fail over and over, but God will not let them go. The strength and the power of man and all of our machinations, and yet ultimately it it doesn't account for anything. Our nationalism, our patriotism, our personal strength, our personal health, it comes to an end, but... Jesus came. God descended from the throne room of heaven to show us the Father so that we can have a personal, intimate relationship with Him that will last for all time and eternity. And when your strength fails, when you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, He will go with you. Because where you cannot go, He goes. He is there. And now in verses 7 through 9, it says, Then the remnant of Jacob, this is after they've been taken, shall be in the midst of many peoples, like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass, that tarry for no man, for wait for the seasons, nor wait for the sons of men. And the remnant of Jacob shall be among the Gentiles in the midst of many peoples, like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like the young lion among the flocks of the sheep, who, if he passes through, both treads down and tears in pieces, and none can deliver." Your hand shall be lifted against your adversaries, and all your enemies shall be cut off. This not only happened once, it happened twice. Where the nation of Israel was scattered throughout all the nations of the world. I said, have you met an Assyrian? Have you met a Babylonian? Have you met a Philistine? No. Those cultures were destroyed, and they were dispersed, and they disappeared. They were accumulated. But the nation of Israel, as was prophesied and fulfilled, was able to maintain their relationship and their identity 
to the homeland and to their tribe. And in May 8, 1948, the Lord raised that country back up, who are still in rebellion to God, even though they are God's chosen people. And that's what was promised here, almost like when God says He's going to do something, He's going to do it. They are the weakest and the smallest of all nations, and yet they continue to be protected by God. We are the weakest and the smallest of people, even though we think we're so strong. And yet He will never leave us nor forsake us. He continues to move in us. And we, children of Abraham through Jesus Christ, we're able to be like a lion among beasts of the forest. Man, that sounds cool. That, that just speaks to my inner manliness. Here it says, like a young lion among the flocks of sheep. So if you're older here, the Lord is calling you a young lion. Let's take it, right? When we can get it. But we are only strong because He is strong, not because we are strong. Because He is the Alpha and the Omega. And now finally in verses 10 through 15 it says, And it shall be in that day, says the Lord, that I will cut off your horses from your midst and destroy your chariots. I will cut off the cities of your land and throw down all your strongholds. Sounds terrible, but listen to this. I will cut off sorceries from your hand. You shall have no soothsayers. Your carved images I will also cut off. And your sacred pillars from your midst, you shall no more worship the works of your hands. You shall no more worship the works of your hands. Verse 14. I will pluck your wooden images from your midst. Thus I will destroy your cities, and I will execute vengeance in the anger and fury on the nations that have not heard. It seems like a terrible judgment, but it's really a great blessing. The Lord is going to deliver them from themselves. When we accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, He delivers us from ourselves. He frees us from our old nature. He frees us from being a slave to sin, and He takes away. And when Jesus teaches the disciples to pray, what, is, what does He teach them to pray? Lead us not into temptation. The Lord has to take away the temptation. We think we're strong, but we are really weak. And the Lord is our shepherd, and so He shepherds us, and He will protect us. Now, here in the Scripture, in verses 10 through 15, He says, I will execute vengeance. He is a loving, righteous God, and He will defend. And in this case, He destroys Israel. But also, when they come back from the land after 70 years of activity, uh, captivity, you will, they will never be having the same sense of worshiping false idols that they did ever again. In fact, when it's even mentioned in the New Testament, they, they stoned anyone that even is remotely close to worshiping idols. That's how different it is. And the Lord has delivered us. He has made us new. He has given us victory. You know, I think about what it says in Corinthians when we go into the kingdom. And I used to be terrified because it said that all of our works are going to pass through a fire. I'm like, Lord, that's not fair. I need to do all this stuff and it's not going to make it through. Well, now I've lived a little. I say, oh, Lord, thank you so much. You're going to make that stuff disappear. All that garbage I did, that stuff with the wrong motives, that stuff I did for myself or just to be seen or just to make people think I was a good person and stuff, Lord, just thank you for wiping that all out. Thank you. And that's the blessing that God is giving them here. I'm going to send my son. He's going to be born. I'm going to reveal myself to you. I'm going to show you what a relationship with God the Father can be like. And I'm going to make all things good. And then when you're in your weakest and your lowest and, you, and everything's falling apart, I will take you. 
I will carry you. I will redeem you. I will restore you, and I will make all things new. So if the Lord blesses me with a long life and tarries, I'm not raptured. And somebody sees me wheeled into the corner, and I got the jello being forced into my mouth. And I don't remember my name, and my strength has failed. Don't pity me. It's just a matter of time. And I will be with the King of kings, and I will rule and reign with him forevermore, because in my weakness he is made strong. And the same thing is true for you and for me. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you and we praise you for the work that you are doing, and we're so faithful to complete. We thank you for giving the ability. We thank you for giving us strength and for crowning us, Lord, and giving us dominion over the world. And we pray that we'd walk in it, but also, Lord, that we would always know that apart from you, we can do nothing. We pray that you would fill us afresh with your Holy Spirit, that we would leave here closer to you than ever before, because we know that you first came for us because you loved us. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.